This podcast was recorded on May 7th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today in New York City with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And we have a very special guest, a returning guest here today, uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, who is the CEO and Director of Intelligence at Quill Intelligence. Kind of uh, interesting to be the Director of Intelligence at a firm. At an intelligence firm, right? yep. Yeah. Is this uh, like the Central Intelligence Agency? Sort of, because yeah, yeah. we know more. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, Danielle, thank you for taking the time to meet with us here uh, in New York. Here. Yep. And last time we spoke, I think it was, what, August of 2018, you were expressing your optimism in the Federal Reserve Chairman, Mr. Jay Powell. Uh, I, I think I had founded the Jay Powell fan club yeah. at that point. Were you the only member still or were you, were you recruiting heavily? I was trying to recruit and, and Twitter is probably not the right place to have attempted to do that because they're all the crazies saying he's just like Yell and he's just like Bernick. And I'm saying, no, he's cut from a different cloth. He understands the credit markets. He told the stock market where it could go in front of Congress. This is just, we've got a whole new regime at the Federal Reserve, first non-PhD in economics since Paul Volcker was in the Eccles building. Let's go. Right. And now we sit here, what, uh, nine months later? Do you have, yeah, you don't have that, uh, that reverence and enthusiasm still? Let's be clear, as, as a former Fed insider who knows how officials' scheduling works, Powell did not have to accept a late last year appearance that he made with Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke. He knew the optics when he accepted the gig in the first place. And you don't get on stage with two people who are revered in an economics club type of setting and, and be disrespectful. So the thing to have done if Powell was going to stick to a script would simply have been to, to have demurred the, appearance to not have accepted. Instead, this was the Jan 4th meeting. Is that the one you're talking about too, where uh, essentially he did the about face and well, the about face that was, that was to come. But yes, when he was asked by Neil Irwin of the New York times, this this is after Janet Yellen had gone through and said quantitative easing, you know, saved mankind as we know it. And it was the best thing that ever happened to the U S economy, vibrant, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like listening to, fingernails on a chalkboard for me. And Neil Irwin <laughs> jumped in and asked him, so is the toolbox readily deployable in the event it need be in the future, including QE, to which Jay Powell said, yes, it is. So and, what, and what that, I, I ripped yeah. my fabric at that point. <laughs> yeah, but what changed? Because I, I recall that being lauded at the Jackson Hole mm-hmm. uh, Symposium where it, it was it was this idea to get rid of the models and this he talked about constellations and our star you know the, the natural rate of unemployment. And- he said that the last two uh, downturns had not been precipitated by any kind of a, a, an upset in inflation or any of the models that the Fed had followed, but rather financial instability. 
these were Minsky moments. He didn't right. use that word, but that is effectively what he said in, in Jackson Hole, at which point I was like, come into the pool. Join me in the fan club. Yep. He wasn't even in the fan club then. Well, well. he knew I liked him. <laughs> um, but, but he spoke with such understanding of it's fine that we're maybe not meeting our inflation target, but we weren't meeting our inflation target in 2008. And look what, look what that got us. Nowhere. We need to have our eye on other metrics, credit spreads, and follow different things so that we can be sure that the same thing doesn't happen again. And then what happened in September? Because credit spreads were wider at that point. Um, you didn't really have the high yield and uh, emerging market spreads were, but that's really out of his purview, supposedly. It was out uh, of his purview, yeah. but it was really important because of what emerging markets at the time were telling him about dollar funding. And they were flashing some very real signals that he should not have disregarded when he did. And then he went and disregarded them two consecutive quarters. It wasn't just September, but right. it was also in December as well. Hey, God, we can replace Argentina. Who cares about Turkey? It was just, it, it was, it was a very strange attitude because you are the world's most powerful central bank. Your actions do affect others. And by the way, a generation of quantitative easing means that all of a sudden the, the, the world is flooded with dollar-denominated funding, and this was not something that could be dismissed out of hand, and yet he did. Right. So what happened after he got together with the apostles, um, Mr. Bernanke and Ms. Yellen? What happened at that point? Why, why the about face? Is it? Um... Well, you know what? Let, let's go back further, and I'll, I'll play devil's advocate to myself. Okay. Um, That's always interesting. Halloween marked two G. There were, there were two G events that day. GM quietly announced that it was laying off a third of its workforce. I'm like, okay, that's not preemptive. That's, that's cutting to the bone. That same day, Moody's downgraded General Electric's bonds for the second time. Well, after Standard and Poor's already had. So that was October the 31st. By the time November the 14th rolled around, the junk bond market had frozen solid. And what passed from that point on was 41 solid days of no financing in the junk bond market. The Bank of International Settlement, World Trade, all international organizations were like, are you watching what's happening in spreads? Are you watching what's happening in outflows? This is serious, serious disruption in the credit markets that could have ripple effects. Remember, October 2012, Jay Powell said, we are blowing a fixed income duration bubble across the entire credit spectrum. This is a man who understood exactly what started on Halloween and dominoed into the bloodbath on on December the 24th, the Christmas Eve bloodbath. And what people need to understand, and this is just my opinion, but what people need to understand is that Jay Powell was not reacting to what the stock market did, even though his lovely December press conference and the 600 Dow points in the red that followed should have been like a sign. You really do need to pick up on your communication skills. And not use the phrase automatic pilot automatic when it comes to pilot, policy. And then just yeah. you know give all the reporters the Heisman, even though he just did that again. Um, but what he really should have conveyed, but he didn't, was... There's been serious disruption in the credit markets, and that's not something that we think we can afford to let happen right now because we don't have adequate tools in our toolbox to address it. That would have been kind of a come to Jesus, at which point I would not have closed the fan club. The fan club is closed. So no no new members? No, no, no. Right. Have you disbanded? I completely. Okay. So let's talk about tools that Mr. Powell has. So 
one thing that I, I think was largely ignored, at least by the Fed themselves, was um, the overnight lending rates, right? So you had uh, repo rates essentially spiking massively um, on December. And it looked like that was a symptom of just not only the automatic pilot of the balance sheet, but essentially liquidity drying up. And, and there's always that short-term spike at, at month end. But I mean, it was significant at the end of the year. And it we've was. seen that each each month end again, we've seen this spike in general collateral repo. What is, what is that signaling to the market? Is, is it a well, problem with the Fed's balance sheet? Is it lack of liquidity? Is it just some new phenomena? It is D, all of the above. Because your small and medium and foreign banks actually have a deep need for funding. 75% of your reserves are sitting at, 25% are sitting with Mr. Diamond. Mm-hmm. And 75% are sitting at J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, City, and B of A combined. 75%. They don't have any reserve issues. And yet they get paid the lion's share of interest on excess reserves. So interest on excess reserves right now is doing a whole lot of nothing. And it has become very much an impotent tool in the toolbox. Now, and the, they just moved it five basis points to try to well, They keep moving it, but it doesn't do anything to Fed funds. It or, doesn't you know. do anything to Fed funds. And the Federal Home Loan Bank, you can't just pick up the phone and say, play nice in the sandbox. You've got to stay inside Fed funds when you can go play in repo for much better rates. It's just in the Federal Home Loan Bank is, is legally required to do right by the FHFA. They're not allowed to listen to Mr. Powell. They have a different arbiter. They have a different regulator, period, end. So you have a Fed funds rate where, you know, trading is 90% of what it was. And you need to be out of QT yesterday. You need to be out of QT yesterday, not because you need to signal that the tightening is finished, even though he already has. Why he didn't just say the Fed's going to pause and stop QT at the same time, which he could have done. He could have. But but he is sticking to his guns because he is Mr. I want it my 3% Fed funds rate. Right. Well, it was strange because at the January meeting where he, he started talking about we're going to discuss the balance sheet, right? Because he knew it was a really difficult situation with his automatic pilot. And so he probably well, was- Well, plus pre- Trump is tweeting about it. Yeah. So- yeah. And, and It's funny. I didn't know the president was following the balance sheet and quantitative tightening, but it was- you know. It was right there in a tweet. You're doing $50 billion a month of, of QT. You need to stop. And I'm going- is Kudlow writing this stuff? I mean, yeah. I, yeah, I didn't know that Trump followed the Fed's balance sheet, and but clearly, yeah. and and he knew he knew that for every two hundred two hundred fifty billion dollars of QT, that that was effectively another twenty five basis point rate hike, according to the Fed's old math right. on what benefit synthetic funding, synthetic easing QE did. Right. So, if they were going to pause based on the theory that the economy needed to take a breather, then they should have just stopped QT. So the signaling of QT, they, well, let's go back. The discussion of we're going to do something about it. He could have already discussed that in January, but it's like we have a plan to have a plan, right? And then he came out in March and then he disclosed the plan. As you said, that it was a little, it's a little long way. It's kind of tapering the taper, the roll off. Meanwhile, they couldn't even execute the QT they said they were going to. Right. They were failing to even hit their 50 bogey. Right. Well, it was up to. So, you know, as long as they got something on the books, it okay. was up to. All right. I know we always focus on it with $600 billion, But if you look at the roll off of the treasuries, but it, it's just obvious- ask Draghi how that works. Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, sometimes you got to create more bonds to buy them. Right. 
but we have no problem doing that today too. So what about the fiscal situation? So you look at the other side of the equation, you know, we've had this massive stimulus via tax cuts, egregious spending or just spending, let's say, without tax revenue, but it's stimulus, let's say. There's now a purportedly $2 trillion infrastructure package. I'll believe it when I see it. You know, we were talking about a trillion dollar one for so long. Should the Fed be concerned about the fiscal situation as well? Is that something that you think that as being an insider at the Fed that you, you looked at uh, when thinking about policy? Or are you really just trying to only focus on the things that you believe that the Fed can control? So the guy I used to call boss, Richard Fisher, was always very concerned when he used to he used to pound the table about congressional misfeasance. And I'd be like, use a different word in a speech to the public. But he knew that to the extent that the Fed could not eventually unwind QE, that it would be effectively monetizing the debt. And the mirror image of that today is, and I think one of the reasons that Powell insisted on continuing with QT is I think he wanted the optics of saying, we rolled a trillion dollars off the balance sheet. Fine, take your optics. Do what you will with them. But that just means that Anything that is not rolled off of the Fed's balance sheet is not effectively but de facto debt monetization. And you have, you, you, you've drawn a blueprint for modern monetary theory. And it doesn't matter if it's a two or three or four trillion dollar infrastructure bill. And I would suspect that student loan forgiveness is going to be a bipartisan issue by the time the, the presidential election rolls around. Both parties are going to take it up because whatever, it's just another trillion and a half. Right. Well, of the argument's debt. great when you when you think about it because all you have to say with that is that you didn't benefit from QE. The banks did, Mr. Diamond did, the wealthy did, and you got left behind. So why not? We have this new policy tool. It's called quantitative easing. We have a balance sheet at the Fed. We didn't know that this existed before. Now we can give it to everybody else. So we thought we were going to exit. Ben Bernanke told us we were going to exit. As things turned out, we couldn't exit, but because we couldn't exit, let's make it a win-win and let's just print to kingdom come. So what's the end game if you have to go out and extrapolate this 10 years from oh, that? Oh, gosh. And I mean, look, we won't hold you to it until the next time we see you, but you know, uh, what, what do you think it would look like if we continue this MMT style, essentially debt expansion? With the Fed as, as facilitator. As, as, yeah, as the backstop to, to take it all in and... What happens? What happens to the dollar? What happens to inflation? What happens? Is is it all contained? I mean, we hear this argument that, you know, the dollar is the reserve currency. As long as you print your own currency, it's not a crisis. But that's how inflationary crises tend to start, I think. They do. It's just you don't have any historic benchmarks absent war. Mm -hmm. Right. That's usually when these type of programs take place, right? Exactly. And that is why reparations, post-World War One, Germany, the Weimar Republic, hyperinflation. That's why all of that unfolded. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I struggle with it, too, because should so there the inflation... Is, there is an endgame. I mean, yeah. all four of my children take Mandarin. Yeah. Okay. And that's no joke. And, and, and it's not that I'm paranoid. It's just that I'm pragmatic. I have three boys. I would rather have them decoding at the State Department then possibly be involved in a conflict because when you have when you have income inequality where it is now then the only way that more fed money printing works is if it is put out on behalf of 
the non-Jamie diamonds. Yeah. Well, the I other mean, 90%. Well, that's kind of the struggle I have with the universal basic income oh, concept. Because, but because all that does is just move the base out, right? So if everybody gets it, it needs to be concentrated. So who's going to work? Right. Right. And so. And why bother? Why bother? So in order to create the kind and of. And that will expedite actually China taking the helm of reserve currency status. How does that happen? explain that? Well, if, if we if we put it out there as public policy that we're no longer going to innovate and produce as a nation, then we're just opening ourselves up to have somebody else take that role over on a global basis. It's mm -hmm. pretty simple. Yeah. So what about um, all the tariffs that are taking place these days? Uh, what's the, what's the impact there? Gosh. And um, is that, is that going to slow uh, the Chinese innovation down? No. <laughs> It's not going to slow Chinese innovation. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to prod you here. I'm trying, oh. I'm trying to poke the bear here. No. I, look, somebody has given the administration a memo that says every time you salmon increase tariffs, there's panic buying. And every time there's panic buying, you increase activities at the ports, you increase activities at the rail yards, you increase activities at the border, and you get a surge in GDP. Mm -hmm. By the way, that's over. Yeah. Inventory builds. Inventory builds, which fed that wonderful 3.2% Q1 GDP print. That, along with state and local spending and falling imports. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, consumption was at the lowest level of a year and business investment was cut in half. So there is something to be said for saying tariffs, you know, in a crowded theater. If you're going to induce firms to get out there and panic buy. The problem is I can't tell you that Germany is going to be able to play along right now so let's talk about and germany you need, yeah. you need all three exporting nations to be engaged mm -hmm. not just the united states and china you need that massive manufacturing engine in germany factory orders just missed again so something is is awry with china shifting over away from internal combustion engines mm -hmm. and it, it may sound like a very micro story but it's pretty macro in Germany today when you're talking about 28 million cars sold per year in China. So it's, let's stay on the German topic here too. So you, you mentioned factory odors. Uh, the PMI surveys have been just atrocious. Um, they're signaling massive recession at this point in Germany. Um, they also have the luxury of having the, the Brexit kind of issue around them too, where there is the lack of investment and desire to do that. Don't forget uh, the European elections. Right. What are they, May 18th? Yep. Coming up. Uh, right. Let's, and let's get, bring on some more right-wing extremists. Yeah. But, I mean, doesn't this kind of stoke that? Doesn't it? It, it continues, right? Because, I mean, you, you, you see the internal uh, failing of the system right now, and it's being uh, imposed by essentially our country and China right now. It is. And how, how do they get out of this? We're putting – so between China and the United States, we're putting the EU in an economic vise, while at the same time, internally, things are getting worse and worse for them. And in terms of an end game, it, it, two years ago, two and a half years ago, the working assumption was that Germans are planners by nature. So by the time Labor Day 2018 rolled around, Mario Draghi's successor would be named. And here we are, just a few months away from Halloween, uh, when he finally gets to go in peace back to Rome, if he doesn't get pitchforked in his own streets um, because Italians have lost as much as they have and they appear to be going back into recession again. 
but here we are today with no successor for Mario Draghi because who's going to come up with a solution? They can't even raise interest rates out of negative territory. They're going to have to rewrite economics textbooks because of this. This is unprecedented in monetary policy history that this occurs. And the only thing they need to do right now is figure out how they can relaunch QE and do it quickly. Right. Who wants the job? That's the question. So when we, when we talk to European uh, domiciled folks, I always get the pushback. There's no way that it could be a German that would actually head the ECB. You know, talking in circles that we traffic in, most of us think it should be a German. It's well, kind we of their it due. Sh- we think it sure should be right. a German. Um, but usually with politics, it's all, hard to <laughs> Everything south of Berlin, let's say, says no <laughs> German. But it is their turn. Because we've had the French, we've had the Italian. Yep. It does seem like Northern Europe is kind of due here, you know? It does. And I think the reason you don't have Germans clamoring to assume the position is they know that they're working, they're walking into a situation that is exponentially worse than Jay Powell did. Mm-hmm. So what would, so let's say that somehow the Europeans change their mind and they say that, you know, Danielle DiMartino Booth should run the ECB. I know, say, I know I'm, 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 I'm Italian, yeah. but that's, I'm far removed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And I, and I know as after spending time at the Fed, you probably don't want to deal with another central bank. That said, what, what policies would you want to impose? How, how do you oh, get out of this? I, you know, I, I actually, I don't see a way out of this with the Euro intact. I just don't. I mean, the, the, the disparity between, Everybody talks about Italy and it's just, it's just a cesspool and it's got all this debt, blah, blah, blah. France is almost there in terms of its, its fiscal fragility and the population's almost as angry as the Italians. Actually, I think the Italians are happier. Plus they would never wear yellow. Um, <laughs> but, but I, I truly, I, you, you have to give me five hours and let me come back okay. to think of solutions. I mean, right now, all they can do is make sure that the loan lines stay open. Yeah, that's, and that's the LTRO. Just, that's why yeah. that's going to just be infinitely expanded. And of just course, keeps it rolling is. over because no one wants the debt. Some right? Italian bank blew up a few days ago again that I'd never even heard of again. Okay. All right. So let's um, we'll we'll pull your resignation from that post. Uh, Thank you. Preemptively, uh, kind of like the the most recent people uh, well, being I, nominated for I, the Fed. I, right. I spoke in Brussels last year and I said you will go into your next recession with negative interest rates. And I was lucky nobody had sharp objects in the audience. Well, I've noticed when I'm over there too, that what I find is that they, um, just the psyche is that rates can never go up. And people are lulled into these investments of zero basis points, one one basis point, two, and they're excited about it because they're losing money just keeping it in cash. By the same token, you've got construction that's, still very healthy in a lot of these countries um germany especially german retail sales are doing okay i I was amazed last time i went to frankfurt just how much it's grown in the last 10 years i'd been there in 10 years and just amazing to see the the development prior to the financial crisis germans were much more frugal which is their very nature but in a negative interest rate world things have gone haywire they've got a housing bubble in germany i mean that's an oxymoron right right but there it is yeah all right, well, let's come back to the U.S. So, Do we have to? Oh. Well, we're, we're sitting here in the U.S. True. Okay. okay. All right. Let's. It's not a bad place. No, I know. Yeah. I know. I know. Uh, especially when you, you know, the lifestyle is good. Interest rates, he actually makes some money on it. What tools does Mr. Powell have going forward? Because now we're hearing about 
inflation targeting, cumulative inflation targeting. We've missed our inflation targets for so long that we need to run them hotter. And, and I, I want to tell our listeners out there that you're shaking your head, your palms on your, on your head, your, your head's down. What is with this new kind of found vigor for we want inflation? It, it kind of reminds me of how Abe ran down, Shinzo Abe, when he ran on his platform down in Japan to say, hey, you know what? We need inflation. Inflation was the boogeyman for especially most of the boomers who lived through it in the 70s. And so now we're talking about, you know, we want, we actually want to inflate. They have wanted to inflate. It's the want is the part. They've wanted to for a long time. But can they? Stanley Fisher's very first meeting when he was vice chair at the FOMC, the very first words out of his mouth, according to people in the know, were, why on earth do you not use the CPI? And for that matter, why don't you use the headline CPI? Right. Well, I think that I've seen the Fed do that. Even Yellen did that a fair amount where it was when it was convenient. It's like, oh, look at core CPI right now versus core PCE. And, you know, when when she needed to stoke Which one's transitory? Right. Well, that's I want to get to that in a second because I because in Feb of 16, when she set the market up for the hike, she was talking about CPI and how the inflation data was going to pull through through energy prices. And she was saying next it was moving the whatever the yardstick is for trying to raise rates. That's what they were doing. So. The, I think the bigger question is, is that, is it even possible to do it, uh, to, to stoke inflation at this point without injecting money into, let's call it blue collar workers, Main Street. Helicopter money. Yeah. Right. Like, That's like what Bernanke called it. Direct right? deposits into yeah. people's checking right. accounts. You might accomplish it then, but it has to be permanent. Yeah. And constant. Right. It otherwise, can't stop. Yeah. Otherwise. It can't be a one time thing. It's universal right. basic income. Ah! Yeah, that's yeah. what you're. That wasn't a mouse across the room. That was that was the, the UBI. I think we've hit a, a nerve there. But but you're you're but right. That's what you're talking about. That is effectively what you're, you're you're talking about in order to truly stoke inflation. But it's it's never going to be the kind of inflation that puts people to work. It's just going to be the kind of inflation that helps people subsist. But you know, Greenspan. That's why it's basic. Greenspan was famous. That's why it's basic. Oh yeah. my gosh, this yeah. is not American. <laughs> but that's why Greenspan was famous. And Volcker actually, in his recent memoir, pointed this out. I, I take my hat off to Alan Greenspan. I don't say that every day, but Alan Greenspan basically fought for inflation to be zero. It's the rate at which consumers and, and, and companies aren't going to adjust their behavior. And there's, it's in the, it's in the transcripts. It's in the FOMC transcripts that Yellen kept pushing him. But shouldn't it be to, no, it shouldn't. But, sh- and, and he held the line until the day he walked out the door. And the minute he did, Bernanke set the 2% target. And we've been, the Fed has been backed into a tighter and tighter corner ever since then, especially because core PCE will never get there. Ever. Because of the components and the calculation methodology. Why don't you explain to our listeners? uh, Do you pay for your health care based on Medicare reimbursement rates from Uncle Sam? No, you don't. I I certainly don't. My my co-pays have gone up. My deductibles have gone up. So have most Americans. That's what health care inflation is. And yet they use reimbursement rates. In a million... And and that's something that they can make... It is baked into the cake. They cannot hit 2%. And now they're talking about widening the band because what, we're completely nuts? I think they got on a, I don't know if it was a rounding, it was like 1.98 or something. I think he got almost there last year after a massive tax cut. Go Fed, go. Yeah, right. So 
you mentioned the phrase transitory, and that's what I pulled out of uh, Mr. Powell's speech at the last FMC. Transient. Yeah, he was using tra- transient. Yeah, yeah he, he got is, like the thesaurus yeah. out before right. the press conference. But that, that was a yelling word. That was that it was, was a, a yelling, total yelling word. Right? He and has become yelling. That's what I, that's what I was trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Is that ever since I saw them, Just at an that, angrier yelling. <laughs> Well, she's named Yellen. I would think she would be angry if she's yelling, right? He was angry at that yeah. press conference. Yeah. But I thought he managed himself okay. I mean, I, I thought that he, he did. He, I mean, he, he, he did was for, pressed and pressed and yeah. pressed because people need to understand if, if you dismiss Rich Clarita, you dismiss Rich Clarita at your peril. You cannot dismiss the importance of this individual on the board. He's not just vice chairman. He's somebody who's introduced a whole new way of thinking. He is Mr. Insurance Rate Cut. He spoke about it. He cited 1990, 1995 and 1998 as instances. But when were those it, really insurance rate cuts? I mean, you had things that were signaling pretty negative. I mean, look, I wasn't completely in the markets back then, but from what I look at in the economic data set, it was faltering. It looked a little weak. Well, you had long-term right. capital management blow up. And, in, in, the in, nine, in the 98 version, right? In the 98 right? version, but, you had but Orange County blow you, up. Yeah, in, in the 94, 94 95. The tequila crisis. Right. were pretty, pretty negative too, right? Yeah. Or not negative, but they were trending down they were signaling tractionary yeah, territory right. yeah as well i don't necessarily have a problem with what happened then i have a problem with with saying that you're going to assign that to what's going to happen tomorrow in this environment things look pretty good i mean for the most part if you look at the number of the indicators today i mean aforementioned pmis are still in expansionary ter- territory production numbers look good 3.2 g- you know gdp for but strip out even the inventory bill, right? Correct. You still Correct. have like a one seven. That this is also first quarter. See, I, we're, we're actually the optimistic people right now. Yeah. We, we get <laughs> criticized a lot yeah. for for being actually, too negative. Q one should Q one should always disappoint to the downside, yeah. and yet it did not. Right, right. But that's just the other side right now. But are you pro the insurance cut? So, like, let's get to the January. I'm sorry, the June meeting. Um, do you think that we should be discussing the insurance cut at this point? Meaning that to get ahead of the idea, I mean, the president's calling for what, a hundred basis point rate cut? God bless him. <laughs> and and QE. The insurance cut just, the insurance rate cut just almost sounds like it should be, you know, reclassified as, you know, let's keep the stock market up or higher type of cut. And that right? is exactly what it is. That's the thing. I mean, if you look back in history, if you look, if you, if you look at the Fed's flow of funds data, 1968 and 1999 were the two other episodes in American history that households, real estate holdings were n- were less than that of their stock market holdings. So in other words, the economy depended more on what happened to the stock market back in those two years than, than it did on, on residential real estate. We've long since surpassed those highs and kept going. In other words, where the stock market goes is where the economy goes. And that's why last year when the stock market was tanking, the Duke CFO survey, they all said we're going to be in recession by 2019. The CEOs were right there with them. The, the, the credit event had forced these theoretical bond vigilantes. I don't actually think they exist anymore. But to the extent that they, that they could exert themselves, CFOs were being forced to start focusing on their balance sheet again. And that's code for no more share buybacks. No more share buybacks, no more stock market. I think we all know that. So well, we got a good one like last week or two weeks ago from Apple, right? You know, big share buyback, 75, just 75 billion. billion, just nothing, little, right little, little yeah. something. Yeah. But the whole Powell pivot then allowed CFOs to go back to playing the game that they love to play. And that's buying back their shares. An insurance rate cut, that would be a buy them even more time. I mean, this is all about buying time, buying time, buying time while 
Meanwhile, back at the ranch, you've seen 65% of the jobs created in April were in very low-paying industries. Back in 2015, 2016, the majority of jobs being created were in high-paying industries, and wage gains were becoming entrenched. Now we're seeing wages increase mainly among lower-income earners because minimum wages have been implemented. But that that can't take away from what happened to them this last tax season, and it helps explain why layoffs are up nine months year over year and why we are very much in a manufacturing slowdown. And the only way to get us out of a manufacturing slowdown is to implement tariffs. But the manufacturing slowdown, is that really primarily attributed to the automotive sector or is uh, is it kind of widespread across the industry? I know you've written a lot about the automotive yep. sector. Maybe you can so elaborate. If you, if you look in the weeds at the Challenger Gray and Christmas data, it is uh, retail is number one. That's whatever. Retail is going to be number one. That that bloodbath is going to continue care, care of Amazon. But number two by a wide margin is industrials across the wide spectrum. And then third is automotive in its own separate category. So no, you're seeing, and, and you're hearing, you, you've heard from Cass Freight, for example, they've had four down months in a row. You've heard from truck sales uh, going down. You're, you're hearing things that manufacturing on a broader level, chemicals, they've been slowing down as well. So it's not just a pure automotive story, but the automotive aspect is what could be the most damaging. Mm-hmm. And the big three automakers have continued to reduce incentives to hold the line on their profit margins while implementing production cuts. So if we don't have a big bounce back in car sales, and we shouldn't, we're coming out of the spring buying season for cars. If we don't have a big bounce back, the sheer magnitude of production cuts in the automobile industry could take the, could, could drag the entire economy into recession. I think, but this is kind of where we were, let's say three or four years ago. We, the, the signals were there. But June I, 17, yeah. June 17, automakers announced massive production cuts. Then Hurricane Harvey hit. Yeah, Har- that's what I was going to say. It's all attributed to Harvey was really good. Everything came flying back, then the right. tax cut, then the tariffs. So all of those things happened subsequent to one another. And they were all they were all great juice, and they all juiced the economy, and that wasn't fake. It was real. And But what we're seeing today is what's next. And Trump is smart enough to understand that he's got to get a what's next. So whether that's tariff-induced panic buying, whether that's insurance rate cut, he knows he needs a what's next because that's the only way this works. It's with more liquidity. So my question started off with, are you pro the insurance rate cut? So would you advise Mr. Powell to do that at the June meeting? At the June meeting? No, I'm saying June. We got another five weeks. Well, that's a long time for the data to continue to weaken if you looked at it that way. Okay. So you're not you're not saying that we should, assuming data weakens, then perhaps. I think, I think an, an insurance rate cut with stocks at all time high would potentially be optically something, a word I probably shouldn't use. Okay. Damning. It would be optically damning to put an insurance rate cut out there with stocks at all time highs. Right. That's I mean, tough. At, at some yeah. point, you're going to have Joe Schmo in the street with picket with with you know forks and. You have to understand that this is still benefiting only a very small segment of the United States while people are having their cars repossessed and 
they're not taking the disney trip that they thought they were going to take because they didn't get the tax refund that they were planning on so again the underlying anger element is something that is not political but it is very much economic and it cannot be ignored yeah well i think that you know the market was was primed talking about a rate cut at the last meeting and clearly i had posited the idea at our last asset allocation meeting is that what does it take for for mr powell to come back and say you know, the risks are finally balanced in the economy, right? Inflation's not horrible. GDP's there. The risks are balanced both. And he kind of signaled that a little bit at that. the press he's, conference. He, he said that the, he, that the economy was, yeah. was solid. And at the same time, he said that the labor market was strengthening. So that's, that's Goldilocks while, while inflation was contained. I mean, Goldilocks was definitely in the, in the hood. She right. was there. So, but the, I didn't read this policy statement. I have to say where did they have risk skewed one direction or the other? I didn't take it as being, uh, uh-uh, yeah. no. Yeah. So no, that, I mean, that's why I'm trying to understand why the, why the rates market is really trying to price in this cut at this point. You know, is, is it, is it looking through the data set? Is it that we're in a world where we're dominated by dovish draggy and uh, the, the cure for everything is the Fed put and that the Fed needs to do this to stoke things? What do you think is in the mentality of race traders at this point thinking about a rate cut? Well, I think when the People's Bank of China said that they wanted to ratchet back the trajectory of stimulus, it's like, what do you mean? You're not going to give us $868 billion every quarter? <laughs> I mean, I say that kind of jokingly, but if that's the case, and somebody else is going to have to come up with that trillion. Yeah. And I mean, we get a big chunk of that through share buybacks. And I'm just talking about liquidity as agnostically as humanly possible. Okay. You've got to put about a trillion out there every quarter, more or less, from somebody whatever the source is. Mm-hmm. And the talk of the insurance rate cut is just so that you make sure that the liquidity doesn't run relatively dry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what what is the next dose of liquidity? Is this why we keep is this why we're hearing now that well, what, QE should be a permanent policy tool even in the good times? I mean that's I, I you're cringing again. But that I mean that was floated out there. Um I think no, even, I just even have Ms. the national anthem going through my head and then it fades off. Yeah, right. Uh, no, that is definitely the working theory. You wouldn't have bond trading desks saying, you know, we, we're going to have to start off at at least a hundred a month, at least a hundred billion a month. And maybe we go up to eight, nine, 10 trillion. I mean, it's just, it's the, it's the, I'm going to age myself. It's the parlor talk. It's what people want to talk about because they have moved on. And if you have a famous venture capitalist come out and say, there will be no more recessions. If that's going to be the working assumption then you have to have liquidity never stop, whatever form it takes. I think uh, Mr. Powell said that back in the September press conference. I think he said that there was no reason that this cannot, this expansion cannot continue. I think the word was indefinitely. Indefinitely, yeah. Right. And he uh, also said the business cycle has not been eradicated out of the other side of his mouth, yeah. but that was at a different occasion. Yeah. Now, also, I think that he brought up, as as a lot of people do when talking about these long uh, expansionary periods, he brought up Australia as an example of the you know yes, like twenty seven year Australia uh, yeah. that just held the line and did not reduce rates because financial conditions had eased sufficiently such that they did not have to. Australia that never engaged in quantitative easing. Australia that has benefited from the biggest resource explosion on planet Earth in supply chains that go directly from Australia to China. So strange comparison. But we've already crossed all those Rubicons. And if we want to keep recession going, we can't keep it going with our integrity intact. We have to go back to the zero bound and possibly negative rates. Oh, now you're possibly negative rates too. Well, why not? 
Mm-hmm. You're, we're, all we're talking about is, is, is generating liquidity in all of its forms. So are you agnostic to QE versus rate cuts? Do you, oh, sorry, negative interest rates. So do you think that they are similar um, in terms of their economic impact? And it, what is the lower bound on negative rates? Because I've, I've been in the, of the mindset, and see, I'm leading the witness here, but I've been of the mindset that you can do negative 40. You can't do negative 400. Pe- people will freak out. If you I have even negative think you 4%. Can do, look, I think negative interest rates and QE are not interchangeable. I think Europe has taught us the lesson. I think we've taught ourselves the lesson. We're not going into the next recession with 500 basis points of ammunition. We're going into the next recession with half that. But there's no more recession, so who the cares? Point, the point is moot. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that if Europe has taught us anything, it's that your exit becomes that much tighter the lower you go on mm. the rate front. Yeah. So what's the next QE look like? Size, magnitude. What are they buying? Yeah. Are we going to... What are they buying? Now, (laughs) there's a good question because when I was inside the Fed, you know, at some point we were buying 80% of net mortgage origination. That was problematic. We had crowded just about every natural buyer out of that market. We owned 40% of certain treasury QCIPs. And the discussions around the table started to veer into... Corporate bonds. ECB's already done it. ECB's already done it. Yeah. The Japanese buy stocks. So do we lose control of free markets or have we lost control of free markets? Well, I mean, you can't, you can't talk about MMT and universal basic income and even, even put the pretense out there that we're going to have free markets alongside such an environment. We will run out of things to buy. Yeah. Especially at the long end. So all we need to do is just create more securities. Hence the MMT, hence the fiscal stimulus. I mean, maybe that's the end game, in, or not the end game, but the next step in Europe and keeping the euro together is just saying, look, what we're going to do since we're having a recession, we're going to turn our eye to the rules because no one obeyed them in the first place. And you know what? You can run a 5% debt, uh, deficit as a percentage of GDP and stimulate locally and we'll buy them. What's wrong with that? That's what, that's what we did here. I can see that. Yeah. I can see the Fed being prompted at some point to buy, oh, I don't know, um, Illinois munis, <laughs> you know, just in case. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I, I've, I've always, we, we have a couple of colleagues that live in Illinois and I still can't understand that they're, they're, they don't have the state tax exemption in them. Like you don't get the credit for buying munis, at least in California where we get taxed to death. At least, you know, we have the, the triple, uh, exemption on, on the state. It's okay. Class. They're going to raise taxes on people who make up to $250,000 and they're going to put pension funding on hold for a few years oh. because that's a good idea. Yeah. Cause that's, that didn't get them in, pro- in, in trouble in the first place, right? Yeah. Yeah. So taxes. Where are we going on tax tax policy here? Oh, you, you can't have MMT if you don't have taxes for the right. wealthy go through the roof. Right. That, they also walk hand in hand. But but I I've been of the mindset that if we're going to do MMT, why do we need to pay taxes? Like, what does it even matter if we're just spending money? Why do we need the tax receipts? I mean, if you want to go to the extrema or the extreme, if you part, want to go all the way out on the spectrum, then yeah. nobody needs to pay anything. You can right. just just yeah. I think uh, have no taxes. That's Stephanie Kelton, right? That puts it out there. It says, you know, you don't need to tax. The only tax only becomes a tool to manage inflation in an MMT world. So it's inflation runs too high. You start taxing, slow down spending a little bit. And just, it's a new, uh, model, I suppose. It sounds it's a like new a new regime. Correct. I'm writing about Benjamin Franklin this week. <laughs> He's spinning in his grave. Yeah. 
So where, where do we go from here as investors, right? So we're talking about things that look on the precipice of a slowdown. It's undeniable. Germany has a problem. Big exporter, you know, big barometer for health overall. Chinese have been stimulating, kind of saved, staved off a, l- a little bit there. The U.S. looks okay. Still, hey, we're growing, growing better than most of the developed world. What are the implications here? for investing, if you think about it. To me, the rates market's the only one that doesn't believe in, in all this newfound data. Uh, the rates market has been stubbornly uh, non-volatile to begin with. Um, the, the 10-year trades at 250 roughly every day. It's been a range like 240 to 260 most of the time of that overshoot. But we have spreads in on credit products around the world. You have it, risk markets globally doing relatively well. What gives? Well, imagine where we sit too in California. There's there's a very strong bid from the wealthy. So you you talked about taxing the wealthy. We hear about the newfound wealth tax too. You talk about non-American. Do you think that get, gains any traction? You know, I, I really think it depends. If if we have eradicated the business cycle, then kind of all bets are off. I, I'm still of the opinion that we will have recession. Every- Why can't it be mild? People, I, this is the question I've been talking to clients about. Is that People equate recession now with, with crisis, catastrophic like crisis, yeah. crisis, it's, crisis. Right. But whatever happened to the recessions, they're six months in nature, nine months in nature. Markets don't go down 50%. They go down 20. You have a slight correction in things and well, you, you have, you get rid of some of the malinvestment. You restructure. You now rest- those are things that happen in real recessions. Yeah. Not recessions when the Fed marches in and opens the credit markets back up and keeps the zombie firms alive. Mm-hmm. That's where we are today. We've never washed the deadwood out of the system from the last cycle. Right. It still sits with us. Whether you want to call it, I don't know what Clear Channel's called this week, or, but some of these names have been mm-hmm. rebranded. Um, mm-hmm. And they're still the weakest junk bonds. Yeah. If we were to have a real recession, I think you would see taxes go up. Yeah. Because you, you, you would have fiscal issues. No, I think, yeah. If, but if you can print your way to kingdom come, then you have no fiscal issues. And it's mm-hmm. just a bunch of sweet little birds flying over the White House. It's just all happy. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just got the visual to sweet little birds. Mm. It's like a Bambi or something, you yeah. know, like yeah. one of the Disney movies, oh, yeah. you know, right? Okay. So is, is, is that just ultimately we have to continue down the path of QE? Is that why the Fed's talking about it? Because if we have to stave off these recessions, we just refuse to let the well, capitalist th- channels work. So the work. reason, the, the difference between a QE and a non-QE world under the assumption that we do go into recession is you have to keep the credit markets open. I mean, AT&T's got, what, $181 billion worth of triple B debt? The, the triple B market's $3 trillion? I mean, these companies are really a, effectively junk. So, but you can't have them trade like junk. You can't have, like, a GMAC every other day. It's right. like, Whoa. Well, I remember the impact We just increased, that. you know, the size of the junk bond market by 18% overnight. No, that doesn't work. So what forestalls that is QE. And forcing the credit markets to stay open. But you say it forestalls it. It doesn't prevent it. It's just delaying. It doesn't prevent it. I mean, you still have crappy paper running around from the last. But they're, I mean, can't think of the name of the company that, that Clear Channel became. There's a heart in it somewhere. Anyways. Um, I Heart Radio is the only thing I can think yeah, of. The heart. Yeah, they're bonds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, they're okay. bonds. Okay. So, hey. <laughs> that's what Clear Channel used to be. Yeah, I thought. Everybody, I, can I, get, I, everybody can get dip financing yeah. and, you know. Right. Well, I, I, I mean, it's funny because it doesn't seem that long ago that we all joked about QE infinity back when we were on QE two or. But that's what we're. Know, that's, that's but that's the are. thing. I mean, you have to you have to be there. But in order to be there, you have to have the mechanics of it, and you have to have the securities. 
What do we buy? That's right. Unless we just create. Well, the human innovation is always there to create. And um, I like to say it's the American way to create debt. So maybe uh, that's just essentially what it is. Benjamin, been... Benjamin Franklin would beg to differ. Give us a preview. Well, we used to be a country that saved and then invested in the future. And then it paid us dividends. And then we could be, we could tell China to pay us or whatever, whoever our, our competing nation was as opposed to paying them. Yeah. We were, it wasn't always this way. We used to be in the driver's seat. Well, that's, um, you know, when you think about uh, nations over, you know, many millennia, you know, that's essentially there's, there's always the top and there's always someone climbing to be the top, right? And that is so, true. And, and we, used, we used to trade in a world of British pound sterling. Yeah. Well, I'm a little more depressed than when I walked in well, here. I didn't want to make you depressed, but, but you, you did throw universal basic income out there twice. Mm, yeah. Well, I think that, that's, that's fair. I, I think I did stoke you. And I said at one point I was trying to poke the bear, knowing, knowing what would get you going there. So with that, I think, uh, is there an, an upbeat note you'd like to leave us on? Please. Some optimism, you know, for the last seven months of the year? You know, I have heard some politicians, some Politicians speak to the success of some of the experimenting that's been going on in our education system. And I think that that is a lot more promising way to invest in the future of all of our children and ensure that we innovate. And I've heard that there's a renaissance in vocational training. Mm -hmm. the, uh, but not everybody has to go to the academic they don't. ivory they tower, don't. right? But if you look at, at Germans upon graduation, whether it be from vocational school or or college, it's 90%. So, and their, their labor force participation rate is in the 70s. I mean, how awesome would that be? And so I, I, I look to charter schools. I, I give speeches at, at charities that support magnet schools. And, you know, rethinking education in America sounds like a really big thing to do, but so is universal basic income, if you think about it, in terms of shifting the culture. But if we can continue to shift the culture to where we shine a bright light on putting resources and changing the way we approach education so we can you know bring back innovation throughout the the population i i think it's a it's just a no-brainer it's a win-win for everybody i like it so that's good I, now now i feel a lot better you know see get, now i need to pick up the phone and tell my four kids to study yeah if you want we'll send them a note as well you Thank know you. Uh, let them know what you can do with education <laughs> so uh before we let you uh get out of here though mm. Uh, Sam has a favorite thing he likes to do before our guests leave, and I'll let Sam uh, explain dun, dun, it to dun. you. And my favorite part is Sherman Says. And just to remind you all of the rules, I will give you a term, and then uh, to which you'll give a top-of-mind response. I'm going to alternate between the two of you. Jeff Sherman first with New York City. Big Apple. Jay Powell. Turncoat. Recession 2019. Negative. Fiscal deficits. Endless. Favorite food. Tacos. Favorite pastime. Vacationing. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Commodities. The trade war. Oh, it's just so painful again that we just can't stop tariffing. I keep, I keep ran on that. It's, it's just a tweet. It's just a tweet. So one far, tweet. right? One yeah. Tweet. Once again, <laughs> one tweet goes so far. Yeah, it's the tweet heard around the world. It's the timing of which. Yeah, right? and it's like here. I just, you know, it's I blame Mueller. 
It's the Mueller report. I still say that he had to, he had to reach somewhere and he's like, constant redirect, constant redirect. We can't have him testify again in Congress. It's, it's bad. So let's, let's, I know there's a tariff coming. Here we go. Anyway, uh, he's, he's the king of redirect. I will say that. All right. And this one, very long one response, by the way. This one back to Danielle Phillips curve. Broken. Mueller report. Didn't I just go off on this? Witch hunt. <laughs> I don't believe that, by the way. Negative yields. Heresy. Guilty pleasure. Hmm. I don't know. Are you a saint? No, but I don't feel guilty for it. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we give you a sociopath. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, non-sociopath. How's that? <laughs> Yeah, right. uh, yeah, I mean, just accept who you are. Yeah. <laughs> Too damn narrow. <laughs> and finally, a question for each uh, current book or whatever you're reading right now. For whom the bell tolls? The sequel to Crazy Rich Asians. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but what is it? I can't think <laughs> yeah, of the okay. name. Okay. All right, and that's All right. it. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Danielle. We really enjoyed it. It's great to get you know uh, some different views out there in the world, some honesty, some candor. And uh, we thank you for stopping by and your trip here to New York City. So thank you so much. Lots of fun. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And then uh, you can catch episodes of The Sherman Show on Google Play, SoundCloud, iTunes, Double Lines website, and 14 other apps. I have no idea what they're called. So again, tune in soon for the next episode. The audio presentation represents Double Line's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of Double Line. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from Double Line, please contact media at doubleline.com. Neither Double Line nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Double Line is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Double Line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Double Line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, Double Line Capital.